This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. People, including ourselves, often expect our grief to be finished by the one-year anniversary of the death. People expect us to move on, and their words shame us for still being impacted. Often, we ourselves shame ourselves for not getting over it quicker, and we beat ourselves up. The path of grief, though, is not confined to just one year. It is a lifelong journey that manifests itself time and time again. Valeria interviews Brandy Lidbeck, the author of The Gift of Second, Healing from the Impact of Suicide. In 1969, after extensive research with dying individuals, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, a Swiss-American psychiatrist, created the theory that people grieve in stages— she discovered that each person near death experienced a series of stages as the end of their life drew near. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Widely used in the mental health profession and accepted in the general population as well, this concept has since been commonly adopted by the world to describe the stages an individual goes through after losing a loved one. Although the theory created by Kubler-Ross is strong and has merit, it gives the illusion that at some point grief is complete. We as survivors know the grief is never finished. The intensity lessens over time and the consuming emotions become more stable, but grief is never fully complete. When folks expect their grief to end and their pain to be erased, they are oftentimes focused on an imaginary timeline waiting for that magical day to wipe away their hurt and allow their life to resume as it was before this great tragedy. When we expect the impossible, we are always disappointed. Brandy Lidbeck says that grief is neither linear nor does it adhere to a particular path. The realistic grieving path begins with a suicide, causing a surviving individual to begin the grief process. The feelings one experiences are overwhelming, chaotic, erratic, and all-encompassing. Brandy compares this feeling to the destruction of an earthquake. Not only does it rock our worlds and bring devastation to our lives, but it also creates cracks in our foundation, causing us to doubt all that was. One moment we can feel intense heartache and sadness, and the next moment we are full of anger and rage. 
always unpredictable and never convenient, walking through grief can be unbearable much of the time. As survivors work through their grief, they will eventually arrive at a phase titled New Normal. New Normal is labeled as such because we will never return to the person we were before the suicide. How could we? This phase becomes our new status quo. The phase in which we go about our days no longer so consumed with grief. Life begins to carry on in this new normal stage until a life event occurs. A life event can be positive, such as a wedding, the birth of a baby, or a graduation, or negative, like the anniversary of the suicide, a serious illness, or a job loss. Regardless of this event, this scenario acts as a trigger and causes the survivor to walk through the grief path again as they process the death of their loved one once more in light of the new events. Walking through the grief path again by no means negates any grief work we have done before. Instead, it brings to light different aspects that need more healing or attention. The grief path is normal and one to fully expect as you traverse life after suicide. We will never be over the pain and devastation completely, but it won't always dictate our lives. Brandy Lidbeck is a licensed marriage and family therapist who lives in California. She is the author of the book, The Gift of Second, Healing from the Impact of Suicide, and the creator of thegiftofsecond.com, a website that offers hope and healing through the journey of suicide loss. Brandy also coordinates a local outreach to suicide survivors team, which deploys teams to newly bereaved suicide loss survivors 24-7. Brandy is a two-time suicide loss survivor and has a heart for those impacted by this same devastation. Here is the interview with Brandy Lidbeck. In your own words, who is Brandy Lidback? Yeah, I am a mom, a wife, uh, a licensed marriage and family therapist, and an advocate for those who've lost those um, their loved ones to suicide. Yeah, thank you. I have a few warm-up questions uh, before we talk about your book, The Gift of Second. And my first warm-up question is, what is life to you, Brandy? Life to me, that's a good one. I think joy and hope and loving others above yourself, loving others well. Yeah, getting the fullest out of it that you can, uh, recognizing that tomorrow might not come and being present in today. What do you think is the opposite of life? Mm, isolation, hopelessness, addiction. Yeah, I love your answer. You didn't say death, right? What is the meaning of freedom to you? Freedom is going to bed each night without having to worry about what you've done throughout the day. Freedom is being able to say, I'm sorry, and moving on, not keeping score. Freedom is just keeping your side of the street clean. I like that. I like that too. <laughs> um, at this time... What do you think is the world's greatest need? Probably presence. I think we get so distracted with phones and social media and who cares about 
you know, what you posted or what they liked or, um, but putting down the phones and just being with one another because there's nothing, there's no replacement for connection, real in-person connection. Yes, I agree. It's easier now to connect because of the internet and technology, but at the same time, we, we become more disconnected from one another. And that's interesting. It's a paradox. Yeah, exactly. What is love to you? How do you define love? Selflessness, not keeping score, sacrifice, uh, all in. What, where, and who is God to you? My God is um, the creator of the universe, who is omnipresent, who also resides inside of me through relationship with Jesus Christ. What do you think is the purpose of life? To love others, to love God. Yeah. What do you think is the purpose of your life? To love others, to love those that God has put in my path, to show his goodness and his love, those who are in dark places potentially, to give hope. Not hope that I can give, but hope that, um, that he gives. Yeah, through you, right. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. So let's talk about your book. What was the inspiration, intention, and the process of writing The Gift of Second? Yeah, so I started the year before with a website that I created with the same name. And the idea was to just create blogs and have survivors of suicide loss, those who've lost someone to suicide, write um, just to encourage and provide hope uh, to other survivors. And then that kind of became well visited. You know, there's a lot of people logging in and reading. And so I just thought, what if I wrote a book that was the resource that I wish I had when I lost my mom to suicide? And so I started surveying a bunch of other survivors like myself and just asked, what would you want in a resource? Like, what do you think would be the most helpful to a new survivor? And they helped compile a whole list and those became the chapters of the book. And the idea is just to, you know, when we feel alone. We feel like nobody gets it. We feel like suicide is such a unique loss, but to read the pages and read the words of those who've experienced the same loss and to know, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. Somebody else gets it. You know, it's that me too factor. And to be able to provide that for other survivors is kind of what uh, was the impetus for writing it. Yeah, that's such a wonderful work and needed. Talk to me about your experience with grief. Yeah, there's a lot of it. Um, I lost my mom to suicide when I was 10. I came home and I found her one day. And this was in 1991. So it was before internet, before support groups, before um, really suicide was really stigmatized then. And so there was not much resources or support. And so kind of just, I kind of liken it to a pinball, kind of just crashing off of everything else that it hits. Um, going through life and uh, not knowing any other survivor because people weren't talking about it. So statistically, I probably did know other survivors, but nobody was, you know, saying it because of probably a lot of shame and stigma. thought there was a lot of shame with like therapy. thought there was, you know, that was embarrassing. I thought people would think I was, you know, a freak if they knew I was going to therapy or that my mom had taken her life. And so I just really kept quiet about it until 13 years later when I met another survivor. And to hear her say the same things that I've been thinking for the last you know, 13, 15 years at that point was, was really eye-opening. And that actually started my own therapy. I started going to therapy each week and really became a saving 
a saving place where I was like a safe place that I could go and share and be honest and vulnerable without censoring. Um, got to work through a lot of that trauma, a lot of that abandonment, you know, all those things that go along with grief. Yeah. Do you think it's still happening to this day? Do we still have this problem, this stigma, the shame? Or... Yeah, I think on a, on a different level, but it's still present. And so the more that we're able to to talk about it and to open up the dialogue kind of helps lessen that, that shame, right? Like nothing good comes out of the dark. So if we can expose it to light and talk about, let, let's have those hard conversations. Let's talk about suicide. And, um, and then it doesn't become such a stigma. It kind of comes become like normal conversation. Yeah. I love that. It's the reason I have this podcast so we can just talk about it <laughs> without any filters. Um, my next question is about the healing process. Talk to me about your own healing process. Did you go through the stages, the stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance? Yeah, so those are uh, created by uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And um, I think that, that paints a lot of times folks kind of take that as a very linear thing. Like, oh, I go through this stage and then I go through the next stage and then I should be done. But we really do ourselves and others a disservice when we kind of use that as, as truth. Cause grief is really all kind of like, I, I liken it into like a ball of yarn where it's one big string, right? But it's all messed up into a big ball. And if you unravel it, it's just still one big string, but you can have anger and betrayal and sadness and, you know, all those things all wrapped up into one and rarely does it ever, if ever go linear. And you could get to a place where you think, Oh, I'm no longer, let's say angry. And then two years from now, you could experience anger again. You think, gosh, I'm right back at square one. In reality, it's just the, the experiencing of it uh, in different times, different events in life. Um, so grief is an ongoing thing, but rarely ever linear. Oh, wow. There's no end to it, you're saying? No. Right. Yeah, because, you know, f let's just say, for example, I lost my mom at 10, right? And by the age of 20, it really, um, I had lived, you know, more of my life without her than I had. Okay. And so it wasn't really on my mind every day. It wasn't as obvious, but then I got married. Right. And then it was about a week after my wedding that I was like, gosh, my mom missed my wedding. Right. And so that was like a kind of a regrieving all of that over again. It wasn't like in a puddle on the floor, but it was like a, a very surreal, like I didn't have my mom at my wedding. And then I brought home all my kids from the hospital, you know, and I had uh, children and she wasn't there and she didn't know her grandkids and they don't know her. And so it's just kind of a life events really bring up different parts of grieving. It's like that onion that we always talk about peeling back extra layers. And so, um, you know, when my mom's mom died, I felt like that was a lot of grief because it was another part of my mom that was gone forever. Right. So grief is never really over. And when we expect ourselves to be over it, we add a lot of shame to ourselves. Like why I should be further along and this shouldn't impact me so much. I shouldn't keep crying or whatever it is that we tell ourselves and whatever we allow other people to tell us, it, it brings in a lot of shame. Yeah, that's another very important point to discuss. How do we end this cycle of um, guilt and shame and also stop other people from doing that to us so bringing shame and guilt um, into play yeah I think it's a lot of self-care but also being patient with yourself and and 
um, recognizing, like giving yourself permission, right? And recognizing that it's not going to be over. We always assume that people's grief should be over in one year, right? You got the one year anniversary and then you should be done. And we probably shouldn't have to talk about this ever again, but that's not reality. And so if we can get rid of those unrealistic expectations, both in ourselves and others, and kind of just allow ourselves the permission to like, I'm still hurting today. And it's been 11 months or 12 months or two years. Because reality is just because, you know, if someone lost their spouse today, they've been married for 30 years. And I've had clients say, my friends are telling me to start dating again. And it's been four months because they're so uncomfortable with my discomfort that they want to fix it or dismiss it and just you know, go start dating again so you don't experience this pain anymore. But that's not realistic. After 30 years of marriage, you're just going to supposed to get over it in a couple months. Like, you know, and so kind of just not accepting that and not taking on other people's expectations and shaming. What do you recommend? Therapy, meditation, exercise? Oh, man, I think all of that. I, I, um, <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's ever just one thing, right? Um, just like a holistic approach. And so exercise is great. Support groups are great because you get to hear other people who have experienced the same thing, say the same things as you. Um, going to coffee with a friend who gets it. Um, therapy, you know, all those things that kind of help mind, body, spirit to, to heal and have patience with yourself. I like that, the idea of having patience, yeah, forgiving, that self-love that really resonates with me in these things. Do you think that we can somehow prepare for losing someone we love? Is that possible? Yeah, I think um, having those conversations. So there's a book out there. It's called the, I think it's called the four most important things. And it's a book that the belief is the, the conversations that you want to have with someone before they pass, especially in, it's written, I think for the hospice setting, but when you know that death is, you know, imminent and the conversations are saying, I love you. Thank you. Please forgive me. And I forgive you. And not waiting till person is imminent to die, but just having those conversations in our daily relationships. Right. So um, not c keeping score, just being present, making sure that your relationships are in good places. And then I think one thing that I'm kind of focusing on right now is I have a couple um, relatives that, you know, are getting older and, and whatnot. And so I found this book that just said, um, it's like a small book, has 365 pages of one question on each page and they can write in their answer. So like, tell me about a childhood memory, you know, tell me about your first bike, tell me about your first kiss, you know, like all these things. And so I have had a couple family members fill them out. And send it to me because I'm not going to remember all those answers. But after they pass, whenever that is, hopefully many years, many years down the road, that I have these things to look back at in their own handwriting and get to just enjoy those stories and their their memories. And so I think that if we do things like that, they get to continue living on with us. Yeah, um, I like this idea of somehow being able to prepare so we don't regret anything Yeah, uh, when something like this happens, because it's a uh, it's part of life, isn't it? Mm -hmm. it's, it's almost having this uh, unconditional love for life. Mm -hmm. um, so there's something else I wanted to ask. Yeah, about healing or griefing in uh, unhealthy and healthy ways. Can you tell me, when do we know that we are grieving in an unhealthy way and that we need help from the outside? Yeah, that's a good question. So usually when we're in a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, 
it's it's sometimes too much for us to to take on. And so a lot of times we turn to vices, right? So that's like maybe alcohol or or food or drugs or whatever it is to help numb the pain because we just feel like we cannot take it in all at once. And they work because they work, right? So if they didn't work, nobody would do them, but they do work. Um, the problem is that after X amount of time, it's really hard to undo that and to get out of that pattern, right? Get out of that addiction. And so um, I would say that if if we can see a time where, hey, you know what? I'm drinking more than I ever did or I'm eating more or I'm putting on weight or, you know, whatever it is of like, we need to evaluate and say, this is not working. It's working for right now to numb the pain. But the problem is that once we take those vices away, the pain is still there. It hasn't healed. It hasn't gone anywhere. It's just that we've allowed more time to pass before we've even allowed to scratch the surface on it. And so now we're six months, a year, 10 years down the road. And if we stop those vices, we still haven't even touched the grief. We still haven't even touched any of the sadness. And so it's just there waiting for us, plus 10 more years of grief and pain, right? So from the beginning, if we could make it like a, a decision, like I'm not going to turn to, you know, any of those, no matter how easy and tempting it is. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to deal with it head on and it's going to stink. It's going to be horrible and it's going to be painful. And yet I'm going to get through this. It's like having that hope that we talked about earlier. I'm going to get through this and it's going to be a heck of a lot easier now than it is 10 years later after, you know, masking it for so many years. The truth is that sadness after an event like this is normal. It's absolutely normal, the feelings. And it doesn't make sense that we wouldn't feel anything. So I like what you said about self-awareness, being aware that the emotions are normal and we don't need to numb them. Mm -hmm. My other question is about sorrow and joy. Do you think that these two emotions can coexist? Yeah. I think, for example, you know, clients will have just lost their spouse and then their kid, who's an adult, will have the first grandbaby, right? And they will go and they will be so full of sorrow that their spouse is not there to enjoy their first grandchild or see them born or hold them, while at the same time experiencing so much joy that another another being has been brought into their family. And so I think the two, you know, they're coexisting in that sense. I think we could also have a tremendous amount of sorrow that they're no longer here and also a huge amount of joy that we got to be with them for those those times and those memories. So I think that they always exist together. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that we can still be joyful despite of events like that. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about the SOSL, Survivors of Suicide Loss. Yeah, so these programs are all over the country, um, probably all over the world, actually. And they are specific for those who've lost someone to suicide. So people can go into a normal grief group, just a typical grief group. And a lot of times survivors will say, I didn't feel like I um, fit in because everybody in there was talking about how they lost their so-and-so to a car accident or cancer or, you know, fill in the blank. And, and suicide is so unique that, uh, when I talked, I think I scared other people or they didn't understand. It didn't resonate with anyone. And so I felt like a fish out of water. And so because of that, survivors, um, all over the, the world have created groups that are just for suicide loss, where you can go in and you can be with other survivors and you could talk about, the pain. You could talk about the trauma of finding them. You could talk about all those guilts and, you know, blaming and all those things that are normal 
in typical grief responses, but all just under the suicide umbrella. Oh, wow. That sounds really good because now we have a, a place, a group that it speaks to us specifically to our needs. Yeah, I like that idea. I'm wondering if this could become also a, a kind of coping mechanism, not the numbing mechanism. Yeah, I, I mean, here's what is a reality is that a lot of times people, when they lose someone, whether it's cancer, you know, leukemia, breast, you know, whatever it is, um, family members will jump in and start doing, you know, causes to help raise money so that this never happens again, right? Or they, you know, they'll lead groups or they'll, you know, fill in the blank, fundraising. And in itself, it's not bad. And it's that me too factor where you want to have people who've experienced it to kind of be your your front runners and your leaders of this. Um, sometimes it, it is possible that they put so much energy into that, that they're abandoning their own grief and their own work that they need to do to, um, to take care of themselves and they'll get burnt out and, and they don't have much to give because they don't have much within themselves at that point. And so a lot of times groups will say, um, you got to wait a couple of years and do your own work and then come and, and lead and do this. But um, in the meantime, it's, it's much more important that you take care of yourself and get the, the work done. Yeah, I like that, that they have a way of knowing when someone's becoming uh, so obsessed with the, the work and doing this, being part of a group like this, that they forget about their own healing process. And I have seen that before happening. So another question is about children. Do you help children? Yeah, we we do. Um, I don't work a ton with kids, um, but... It's really important and, and research shows and, you know, professionals all over show that it's really important to tell kids the truth of what happened. And sometimes parents are really um, scared, really um, intimidated by the fact of telling their kid that so-and-so died by suicide and because they think that um, it's too scary, that their kid will also try to do that or think that that's an acceptable um, solution to what's going on. And so they tell them, oh, it was a car accident, or oh, he or she had a heart attack. And so the kid believes this, and then they end up hearing it from a, a classmate that knows the truth, or they see the death certificate, or they hear other adults talking, and they realize, oh, they've been lying to me. And so then it's uh, a lot of years have passed where they've been grieving a lie, right? And then it kind of starts their grieving all over again. And then in addition to that, it's the betrayal that somebody has been lying to them this whole time. The person that they thought they could trust has been lying to them. So there's a lot of resources out there on how to talk to kids about it and, you know, making it age appropriate, but that's always the best case is to, to tell them the truth. Yeah. I mean, everything in life isn't a brand. It's much better to tell the truth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's that going back to putting your bed, your head down at night and not having any regrets. Mm, the way you defined freedom, right? Mm -hmm. I agree. Do you talk to your own children about suicide and um, events like that? Yeah, I do. I've talked to my oldest the most. Um, my kids are still pretty young. And so I have a, a different circumstance in that they never knew my mom. And so it's not like there was somebody in their life who's no longer there. Um, they never knew her. And so... Um, they do know, obviously they've seen my book around the house. Um, you know, so they know what I do and the oldest one is only nine. So, um, he kind of un understands it and we will have conversations about it, but, um, 
you know, other families who lose someone currently when their kids are small, then they have to have those conversations, you know, in real time and are kind of thrown into that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. What is the age that you recommend adults have conversations about uh, these topics, suicide especially? So, I mean, there are resources out there. The idea is that you have the conversation and you just make it age appropriate. So, you know, at, at five, you know, you're going to have a different conversation than you would with a 15-year-old, right? And you just small sentences that are just matter of fact, and then leave it at that. And if they want to ask questions, then you are an open book, you know, with, you know, uh, with the understanding that you're not going to say anything that's traumatizing or give any specific details that could be scary or, um, but you're going to answer their questions. And a lot of times kids really struggle with, is it something that I did? Is it something, is it because I didn't clean my room or I, I told them they were mean or, you know, whatever it is, kids take on that egocentric of this was my fault. And so really having the parents be able to explain to them, this has nothing to do with you. Okay. This was not your, your fault at all. And so kind of um, pounding that into the kid's head early, I think is, is beneficial. Yeah. How is gratitude part of the healing process? Yeah. So. I think gratitude is so key. I think when, for me personally, as I get to talk to fellow survivors who are just starting their journey, they just lost someone and to just, um, you know, go and speak truth into them and offer them what I was never offered. There is a real healing part in that for me. And I'm also really grateful that they allowed me that time and space to have that conversation with them. Cause I don't know if I would have been so open to have people come speak to me at that age. Um, but being able to provide resources that they don't even know they need yet is really beneficial. So they're not lost and kind of walking around aimlessly in the dark. And so I'm really grateful every time I get to go to meet with another family that that kind of helps my healing as well. Yeah, I can definitely see that because there's something about teaching or helping others that is so powerful, isn't it? Yeah, when we can take things off of ourselves and be so self-centered, you know, but other-centered, then, um, you know, that's when healing happens for sure. Yeah, I like the way you mentioned uh, earlier with kids that they egocentric in the way that word that you use, because it's true. Yeah, most of us, when growing up, everything's about us, and we take upon all the pain and the responsibility of the world, and that's why, yeah, it's so much pain. It's still out there, suffering. Talk to me a moment about uh, suicide prevention. Are you involved in any kind of uh, programs or groups? Yeah, so we do, you know, I do a lot of suicide prevention trainings and letting people know about the signs of suicide and what to do when you recognize the signs and how to help people. And I mean, kind of go back to the days of G.I. Joe, (laughs) Um, like knowledge is power, right? And so um, if we could be aware of the signs, then we know what to look for and we know when to intervene. That's true. What do you think is the the main causes of suicide in the United States? Oh, man, I I get that question a lot. One thing I think to be mindful of is there's not one cause of suicide. And sometimes we get really, you know, like, for example, when people die or get diagnosed of lung cancer, the first thing people assume is that that person's a smoker, right? Oh, did they smoke? Right. And we ask that question because then we feel like we have some sort of control, like, oh, yes, they smoked. Okay, good. I'll never get lung cancer because I don't smoke. 
Okay, but there's actually a lot of people that do get lung cancer that's never smoked. But the reality is we want to have some sort of semblance of control, like, oh, that feels really scary and chaotic. And so if I could just package it nicely into a smoking equals lung cancer, then I never have to worry about that. And so the same thing goes with suicide. Like if I could say, um, oh, it's because you know, they were bullied or, oh, it's because of this, or if it's, you know, whatever it is, then I could package it and say, that won't happen to my loved ones. Because if I, if I find out that they are out of those stereotypes of why they died by suicide, then it's actually really scary for me to look around my family and loved ones to say, oh my gosh, this is possible for, for anyone, not just this little neatly packaged, you know? So, um, there's not one thing, but there's a lot of contributors for sure. And so, um, you know, there's, situations that can happen that can kind of put a person more at risk, like job loss or, you know, suspension from school or an unwanted move or a death or financial, you know, like job loss. There's a lot of things that could put a person at risk, but there's, it's never A plus B equals suicide. Yeah. And I agree. I don't read much about it. Uh, Suicide prevention. I have interviewed, I think one person only. And um, she talked specifically about teenagers, that that happens a lot in the United States. That's another question. Why do you think we don't talk about it? Because I don't hear much about that. I think it's an uncomfortable topic for a lot of people. I think people have stereotypes about who dies by suicide. I think there's also, you know, personally, I think there's like a morbid curiosity because if a celebrity dies by suicide, then it's all over the news and the internet of how they did it and who found them and why they did it and speculation, you know, all this stuff that's really not helpful to anyone. Instead, it should just be like so-and-so died by suicide. If you're, you know, having thoughts about suicide, call the national hotline or get some help. But instead they just sensationalize it. Right. So then there's a stigma attached to it. There's people's opinions about suicide. And so I think it's just not a safe culture on a whole to, to talk about it and open up about suicide. And so people are, who are having those thoughts, the ideas of suicide are not finding open arms a lot of times to talk about it. And so they don't. Wow. So in a way, we need to create that space, more space for people to talk about it. And yeah, there's something about, like you, you mentioned, causes being circumstances, challenges in life, you know. So it seems like there's a need for Uh, I would say spiritual health. (laughs) I know emotional health, mental health for sure. But do you connect spirituality to mental health and emotional health? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all it's all encompassing, right? Kind of how we talked about earlier, the physical, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual, all of those things kind of need to be in a healthy place. I think one thing that spiritual or faith does to people is it, it instills that hope that you know, if we came down to, I was just listening to a, a conference um, seminar this morning about if we go down to the the one, if there was one key factor of what we could say that's at the core of um, youth suicide, it's a hopelessness, right? And so how do we get hope? Where does that come from? You know, it might look different for every single person, but definitely needs to be in the conversation. I like that idea. Yeah, perhaps the foundation it, it might become the foundation. From what I see, we have lost that. We have lost that connection with what you call God. I might call the universe and love, uh, unconditional love. Um, we are almost at the end of the questions related to your work. I have some more other questions for you here, final questions. 
What are some of the most profound lessons you you have learned from losses, from your losses? I think that one that has been just an ongoing conversation in my head for 30 years, you know, since my mom died is that conversation in my head has actually changed. It's evolved over time. So at, at first it was, she did this to me or I, she didn't love me enough to stay to now it's, she was not in a healthy place and, and didn't reach out. Right. And so that, that has evolved. And so I think that that also gives myself um, grace and permission to say, if you get to that place, you, you got to reach out because you have three little kids that depend on you and who love you and who think that you matter, who know that you matter. Right. And so I was really angry as a kid at my mom for so long and, and just kind of, you know, really, I honestly took on this screw you, you know, kind of mentality. And so now I think, gosh, what was, what were her last moments? Like what, how alone and desperate and hopeless must she have felt? And so really having that empathy for her now as an adult, um, having that, you know, man, I'm so sorry that you were in that spot. I couldn't have said that 30 years ago, but today I could say, man, I, um, I empathize with that. And I empathize with those who get to that same place. We have 48,000 people last year in the United States died by suicide. And so, you know, you, you want to look at, man, I'm so sorry that all of those people, you know, were hopeless and, you know, whatever else was going on kind of empathize with them instead of stigmatize that. Right. I love that, Brandy. I love the compassion, yeah, your compassion, because it's something that you have learned. So you came from lessons and some people choose not to learn. So I really appreciate that because now the world becomes a better place because of people like you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And um, I have yeah, some final questions for you. Before I do, would you like to add anything that my other questions didn't cover? No, I think if a couple, you know, if you have lost someone to suicide, uh, you're not alone. Reach out to someone. You could go on Amazon and find a million books. You can go online and find a million support groups. I'd obviously recommend my book, but I think there's a lot of really helpful books out there. It's good to get out of your own head and just hear from other survivors. So I just encourage you to, to do that and to be patient with yourself and get rid of all timelines that say that you need to be healed in X amount of time and just take it day by day. Sometimes it's minute by minute. Sometimes it's just a really big achievement to get out of bed that day. Mm, wow. That's wonderful. Um, my final questions. How do you define, what is your own definition of strength? I think strength is probably just the willingness to keep going every day, not in the sense of a suicide versus not suicide, but just the willingness to to get up and to to be a better you, to to go to work, to provide for your family, to tell them that you're sorry, to own your mistakes. Um, those are things that are the definition of strength. I think of coward is when there's no ownership, you know, or there's no that you're intentionally out there hurting other people because of your own wounds, right? Like just be okay with looking in the mirror and say, man, there are things that I could improve about myself and no one else is going to improve them for me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the next step to make me a better me. I love that. The idea of taking responsibility for our own lives and emotions and path. Yeah. yeah. Um, what is another word for healing? Freedom. I'd go back to freedom. I'd go back to um, compassion, probably. That sounds good too. Yeah, compassion, right. 
If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently from now on? Yeah, I would. I would get rid of all distractions and just be present with my family, which is probably a good indicator that I should probably do that anyway, if that's my <laughs> answer. Yes. Because <laughs> uh, we never know. That's interesting about life. Yeah, we never know. Yeah. And it'd be a bummer to have regrets, you know, and um, and just for my kids or my husband to think for one moment that they weren't as loved as much as they are. And so if I can articulate to that to them, you know, then I think it, it saves them a lot of grief. Yeah, that sounds really good. <laughs> like a plan. <laughs> uh, do you believe in life after death? Yeah, I do. I believe. What kind of life? Yeah, I, um, I'm a firm believer in what the Bible says of being in heaven with, with God and yeah, for eternity. Yeah. And that goes back to that word hope. So faith, hope, trust. Yeah. Yeah. What are three things about life you know for sure as of today? That I'm in control of nothing. <laughs> uh, as evidence right now with the coronavirus, you know, yeah. we're in control of nothing. That really, what is a big deal is really not a big deal. You know, things that were a big deal 10 years ago mean nothing you know, today. So the things I'm losing sleep over today really won't matter. At the end of the day, just loving others well is what it's all about. Mm, how beautiful. Thank you so much for your wisdom and your presence, Brandy. It has been a great conversation, fun, and I call it spiritual fun. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Yeah, so um, thegiftofsecond.com, um, or the name of the book is also The Gift of Second, which you can find on Amazon. Or Yeah, and I have a Facebook page for The Gift of Second as well, and try to post um, different writings from different survivors. Yeah, it's kind of about it. Great. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Thank you for having me. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Brandy Lidbeck, please visit her website, thegiftofsecond.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bigrock. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.